Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Right. Well, I've given the, been given the amazing subject of justice and judgment to talk to you about today. So put your seatbelts on, buckle in. Uh, don't know who chooses to speak about subjects like this. <laughs> but we're preaching the Bible, the Word of God, and it's in there. It's in the book. So we get to tackle it. Okay. This is the third week of our series uh, in the book of Hosea, entitled Relentless Love, um, and we're looking at different aspects of the character of God throughout this series of about eight, eight weeks or so. And today we're exploring themes found in chapters four and five of Hosea, and uh, I want to look at those and, and how really the, the themes in those chapters of the book find their fulfilment in Jesus. So I want to start by just asking you a question. Have you, or can you think of a time when you have been wronged? Perhaps you've experienced injustice. Maybe you've witnessed uh, some kind of abuse of power. Maybe you've encountered corruption, or you've been the victim of crime, maybe a car theft or a burglary or a fraud. Now, I don't want to upset you, but I do want you to just bring that thing to mind. Did you get resolution? Was justice done? Hold that thought because I'm going to revisit it a little bit later in this talk. First of all, let me just give you a 60 second recap in case you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks. You can easily catch up online. But Hosea, the book of Hosea, is um, it's a lived parable of love and betrayal. It's also a collection of poetry. It's um, a preaching spanning about 40 years in the life of Hosea. The book is light on historical details, so there's not much background about what's going on. And it's also slightly complex because not everything is written chronologically. So Hosea was actually addressing um, changing circumstances in his nation over a period of about four decades. Now, during that time, the nation of God's people had been divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And it is really important to say that when the Bible refers to the historical people of Israel, it does not mean the current political land of Israel. During Hosea's lifetime, Assyria would become the regional superpower that would extend its influence in every direction, including over Israel and Judah. And Hosea spoke about the rise of Assyria and its invasion of Israel. At the beginning of the book, chapters 1 to 3, Hosea has been living in the northern kingdom. He's been a northerner. And all of his personal challenges with his unfaithful wife would have been witnessed firsthand by the community there. And now for the following 11 chapters, Hosea has journeyed down to the south and he's now living in Judah. So we're going to pick things up at chapter four, where Hosea's challenge to the people is that they have broken their covenant with God. That covenant of God made by God with his people on Mount Sinai. The people had forgotten God's faithfulness and goodness. They're in a state of spiritual decline they are showing a coldness towards God that could only lead to destruction. And in chapter 4, Hosea starts with the image of a court. The, uh, the chapter heading in my Bible is the charge against Israel. And I was a little bit inspired by Adam last week dressing up as a bride. If you saw it, you, you can't forget 
that image. And, and there was a little part of me during the sermon that was thinking, I should get a judge's wig. Should I get a judge's wig? Should I? No. You'll be glad to know I didn't do that. Anyway, the idea is in this chapter that God, the faithful husband, is confronting his unfaithful bride, the people of God. And God sets out through the words of Hosea the case for divorce. He's confronting the people with the evidence of their unfaithfulness. So first he addresses the people and then he addresses their leaders. So let's look first of all at Hosea chapter 4 and verses 1 to 2. He says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Gosh, that's quite harsh, isn't it? No faithfulness, no love, or the word for, um, for love there, hesed, means loving kindness. There's no loving kindness, no knowledge of God. The people had rejected God's law. Any external reference to God's ways had been utterly, utterly neglected. They were ignorant and arrogant. Their passions had become their guide. The people's appetites had taken them away from God. They'd rejected the loving leadership of their God. They had become their own highest authority in choosing independence and autonomy. The word autonomy is an interesting word. It comes from two different Greek words, auto, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So to be autonomous is really to be a law unto oneself. There was a philosopher called Immanuel Kant, and he popularised the idea that moral truth or law is not without, like external to us, but it's within. It's not objective, but it's purely subjective, whatever we think. And for now, us, for us now in the, the 21st century, it's kind of summarised in a cultural slogan that you might have heard, you do you, or do what works for you. The assumption is that you always know best. You are the highest authority. But here's the problem that Hosea expresses in chapter 4 and verse 6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. The people's rejection of God and thinking they knew best was destroying them. They don't know God's words or his ways. And as I was reading this, I felt challenged. Perhaps it begs the question, do we know God's words and his ways? Do we? What are we actually doing to get to know God? You see, we all get the fact that what we feed on physically, what we physically eat, will affect our health. If I eat all the junk food that I would quite like, if I eat all the chocolate and the crisps that I might crave, I won't be fit and healthy. But what we feed our minds on will very quickly affect and shape our values and our thoughts. And our values and our thoughts then show up in our actions. So our spiritual well-being, how we're doing with God, really depends on our diet. What we consume really matters. We need to feed on God's wisdom, on his truth, and on things that will nourish our soul. It says in Psalm 19, verse 10, the decrees of the Lord are just and fair. They are sweeter than the purest honey. Andrew and I have been listening to a podcast recently uh, called The Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett, the entrepreneur who you might have seen on Dragon's Den, interviewing Professor Scott Galloway, who is a marketing expert and an investor and coach. And Galloway said this really interesting thing. He said, I often meet young people who want to make progress in life. They ask for advice. The first thing I do is I ask for permission to grab their phone. 
I open up the app that reviews screen time for social media use and games, and I look at their search history. I see what they're consuming, and I can tell them exactly what they are becoming. That can become quite a wake-up call for those young people. We really do become what we consume. So Hosea verse 6 in the Passion Translation says this, My people are ruined because they don't know what's right or true. So then Hosea goes on to address the leaders, having laid out his accusation against the people. Because the priests had neglected their duty as the teachers of the people. They were called to be the nation's spiritual educators, but they were failing badly. The people were stumbling because their guides were stumbling. So God confronts the guides. He confronts the teachers. It reminded me of Jesus' words when he confronted hypocrisy in the Pharisees. He said, you are like blind guides trying to lead each other. Both of you will fall into a pit. And here, Hosea says, you stumble day and night and the prophets stumble with you. So having reviewed all the evidence, God gives his verdict. God gives his judgment, if you like. And he says, because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. So every time they added more priests, the more sin there was. They needed leaders who were faithful to God. You know, it's a weighty responsibility to lead God's people. Those guys who've stepped up to take on a small group are taking on a responsibility. And those of us who lead are stepping up to be judged more strictly, not just by people, but also by God. So please pray for us as your leaders. In James, the book of James, uh, chapter 3, it says this, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That tends to keep us focused when we're doing our sermon prep. But in the New Testament, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy speak of the track record and requirements for leadership, that we must be servants, not seeking spotlights, that character is more important than charisma, that godliness is more important than gifting. So to aspire to lead is a good thing, but it comes with high expectations to follow the way of Jesus and to be a godly leader. So we see a progression coming back to Hosea. We see God first explaining his case to the court, and then he expresses his judgment on the people and specifically on the priests. Now, we don't normally run towards concepts like judgment. It makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. We, we don't really like it. It's not an easy topic, but it's not only in the book, it's also in our consciences. You see, our choices have consequences, and God demonstrated that he is both just and willing to judge. If we're indifferent towards God, it has implications for us and for our relationship with him. Remember when we started, I asked you to recall a time when you'd been wronged. It's not an easy thing to remember, is it? When that comes to mind, then we want justice, actually, and we want a judgment, don't we? We want justice for the action of others, not so much for ourselves, perhaps. But where does this idea of justice actually come from? Where does that inner sense of right and wrong come from? Well, this was an idea that deeply bothered the atheist C.S. Lewis before he came to faith in Christ. And he said this, just as a line can only be judged to be crooked when compared with a straight line, 
So an act or person or situation can only be condemned as unjust when it's measured against a prior standard of perfect justice from which it deviates. And God is that perfect standard of justice. So in Hosea chapter 4, God, through Hosea, has set out his case and he was going to judge. But how did he do it? Well, this is one dimension of judgment. You're going to see on the next slide, that little boy is tempted to play with that flame. A little bit about my husband, Andrew. If there's a flame, Andrew's going to play with it. He loves playing with candle wax. But throughout the Bible, there is a concept that God, in response to human rebellion and persistent disobedience, gives people over to their own desires. You'll find that in Romans. And it's often linked with God allowing us to experience the consequences of our own choices. God is like a loving parent who is trying to teach his children, don't play with fire. I'm not, if any of you have had children, for a long time, you can keep pulling a child's hand back from the flame. But in the end, if you're not present, if they disregard your words, that child would have the freedom to touch the thing that they want, and then they will experience the concept of that action, and it might hurt. Well, God's people are sometimes like stubborn children disregarding the loving words of Father God. Because per per persistent disobedience can lead to spiritual and moral deterioration. If we choose to turn our backs on God, we can become ensnared by our own destructive choices. And that's exactly what's happening here in Hosea's story. So how does God's judgment show up in this story? Let me give you a few pointers. Because of their choices and the things that they've decided to do, the people are reaping the consequences of their actions. God has literally given them over to their own desires. And they're experiencing barrenness, brokenness, and betrayal. So barrenness, the land is barren, the land is dried up. Because the people have been looking to fertility gods and idols for food and harvest. That's who they've been praying to. And so God is going to give them exactly what those idols deliver, which is absolutely nothing. And then there's brokenness, because the people have been endorsing and engaging in sexual relations with shrine prostitutes. Their children were copying their example. And in the land, there was sexual oppression, there was adultery, and there was prostitution present in God's people's families. And then betrayal. Hosea mentions Assyria, the regional superpower, and God has repeatedly warned them about this. But in, the, in their ignorance, the people will turn to Assyria for help. And they little suspect that in, in years to come, Assyria will be the very empire that will ultimately destroy them. So what the people wrongly turned to for help turned on them and tore them to pieces. And you know, as I read the words in chapter 5 of Hosea, it's incredibly sad you, you feel the sadness in God's heart as he writes. You see the people stumbling about, not acknowledging God, full of unfaithfulness, corruption, arrogance, and unable to find the Lord. And, and as I read it, I just sensed this real sadness in the heart of God that he would have to write these words about the people that he loves so much. The warning that we can take from this is to be careful what we turn to in trials. God's judgment in Hosea was to give the people over to the thing that they wanted. Now that's all well and good, I hear you say, but where's the relentless love of God? 
the title of our sermon series in all of this. This is just dismal. Well, the whole Bible speaks of one overarching story. And that story points forward to the life of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets had been looking forward to the Messiah coming. Even 700 years before Jesus actually came, Isaiah spoke of Jesus and he said this, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The people had broken covenant with God. God was just in judging them. But God, in his kindness, sent Jesus because Jesus came to establish a new covenant. And we see the relentless love of God expressed in him. Jesus is the bridegroom sent by his father to find a bride. Those who respond to the love of God in Jesus are brought into relationship with God. And we, along with everyone else who accepts Jesus, become part of his church. And that church is the bride of Christ. So we live in the light of God's relentless, faithful, life-changing love. It's a new arrangement, a new covenant. And the central event in establishing that new covenant is the cross of Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 8 to 9, it says this, Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly like those people that Hosea is writing about. For through the blood of Christ, we have heard the powerful declaration, you are now righteous in my sight. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you will never experience the wrath of God. Now we can't reduce the cross or the love of God to any one simple illustration or explanation. The New Testament witnesses to the cross, the disciples who watched it happen, Um, and saw the resurrection, give a whole range of different complementary perspectives of what happened there. And in the same way that a scene can be viewed from lots of different perspectives, the cross has so many dimensions to its impact. For sure, it's an example of self-sacrificial love. Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. But it was also a moment of spiritual victory. Jesus' death and resurrection was a demonstration of his victory over all the spiritual forces and powers that come against us. It was a cosmic victory of Jesus over Satan and his kingdom. Passages like Hebrews 2 and Colossians 2 tell us that when Christ died on the cross, he destroyed the power of the evil one. It says he made a public spectacle of them, the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. And the cross also shows Jesus paying a debt to God that we owed. It says in Mark 10 and verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus wasn't settling any debt he owed to God because he was without sin. Jesus paid on our behalf the debt that we owed to God. And that is why Jesus's final words before he died were, it is finished. An accounting term for paid in full. And at the last supper before the crucifixion, Jesus said, this is my body given for you. It's for us. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for 
you. Romans 8 in the message says this, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem of sin as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. Jesus took our place. And John Stott said this, at the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we don't deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. So the judgment of God that should be ours was dealt with in full by Jesus on the cross. There was a lovely story that um, I read that Billy Graham had told. And he said this, Once when I was crossing the North Atlantic in a ship many years ago, I looked out of my porthole when I got up in the morning and I saw one of the darkest clouds I had ever seen. Now, if any of you have been on ships and you look out of your window and you see a dark cloud, it's not a good sign. It, you know, you're in for a bit of a, a troubling few hours. He said, I was certain that we were in for a terrible storm. So I ordered my breakfast to be sent to my room and I spoke to the steward about the storm. And he said, there's nothing to fear. We've already come through that storm. It's behind us. If we've trusted Jesus, we have come through the storm of God's judgment already. That happened at the cross. And Romans 8 and verse 1 says, The case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined with Jesus. A few years ago, we had a, a friend in, in our church whose story kind of mirrored Hosea's. He had broken his marriage vows and he had had an affair. And his wife was devastated. His marriage was on the rocks. He was trying to do things to mend his marriage, but the guilt and shame that he felt for what he had done was crushing. And one Sunday, he came forward and he took communion. And for the first time, he grasped the significance of what Jesus had done. This is personal. This is for you. And in that moment, forgiveness lifted off his shame and empowered him to go back and to faithfully serve his wife and rebuilt his marriage, and they're still together now. You know, guys, we've all been a law unto ourselves. We've all hurt others. We've all hurt ourselves, and we've all turned away from God. We've wandered off, and we've made some bad choices when we were under pressure. Or you might be thinking, well, I'm not, it's not too bad. I'm not, I'm not too bad of a person, really. Well, it got me thinking that just this week, in the news, Welsh Water has admitted illegally spilling untreated sewage into rivers for 20 years. You might have read about that uh, in the papers. So uh, if I was to offer Joe this, this glass of water, you are Joe, would you like would you like a nice glass of water? You'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. She she you might want to know where that water's from. And I'm going, it's lovely Welsh River water. It's lovely. Yeah, it's great. It's 99% sure, uh, pure, I'm sure. I mean, you know, 99% good. It's, it's lovely and, and pure. And now Jo, if she's got any sense, probably wouldn't touch it. 
Because the 1% sewage, uh, guys, this is a fresh bottle of water, don't worry about it, it's not well, you can drink it. Um, but the 1% sewage in the water changes everything. Water is either pure or it's not pure. It's the same with us. Our pride, our independence, our self-reliance, our autonomy changes everything. In God's sight, we're not pure, but Jesus is. Sometimes we're too stubborn, too afraid, or too proud to admit what we need. The truth is, we all need God's forgiveness. I heard it put this way by a pastor that I know. Jesus is the one who dies for us while we're his enemies. He's the one who prays, Father, forgive them while he's being killed. Jesus is the one who loves, loves, loves to the point of death. And even after he's dead, the grave can't stop his love. He has the gall to come sauntering out of the tomb on Easter Day so that he can love some more. In Jesus, we see the relentless love of God. The leaders in Hosea's day were blind guides. They were walking in darkness. They were unable to lead the people into truth. Jesus is the only leader who deserved your full allegiance and complete trust. Because he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Like the people explained in the book of Hosea, it's easy to look the wrong way for help. What those people turned to turned on them. But Jesus promises something altogether better. He said in Matthew 11, turn to me, come to me when you're weary and burdened and I will give you true rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So in a culture that says you do you, we do Jesus. And God's not surprised by our faithlessness or our rebellion. His love for us will never depend on our behaviour or our performance. We're secure in his love because it's rooted in his unchangeable decision to love us. And that love has been clearly displayed at the cross. And today, God is inviting us all to lay down our lives at the foot of the cross, to fully trust that Jesus has done everything needed to bring us home to God. He wants our lives to be changed by the relentless love of God. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.